welcome to the 24th episode of the Loose Threads podcast, a show about the intersection of fashion technology and commerce. Joining me today is Olivia Wright, the founder of Rallier, a brand inspired by modern uniform dressing with a social mission that aims to decrease gender inequality in schools. Olivia founded the brand after hearing about how the presence of school uniforms dramatically increases the chances girls would attend school. She went to business school and then launched the brand, starting with the social mission and working her way backwards. We do so many in-person events. In April, we had five events. And so that's what's the most effective for me is like meeting the customer in person. We had a great talk about the brand's launch, how it approaches design and manufacturing, how it has explored different distribution channels, especially in-person events, the power of word of mouth, and where the brand is headed next. This is the first edition of our Spotlight series, which profiles emerging brands and companies in a slightly shorter interview. This is new and we're looking forward to your feedback on it. Here's my talk with Olivia Wright. Talk a bit about how Rallyer got started. So my background is in luxury fashion, which was always sort of ironically <laughs> the dream when I was younger. So I was an in-house publicist for brands like Cartier, Vera Wang, Prada. When I was at Prada, I saw a documentary called Girl Rising, but it's essentially a documentary about girls around the world that are trying to go to school that can't for various reasons. And what I always remind people of is this was in 2013. Like, this was pre-Michelle Obama Let Girls Learn. Like, I was shocked when I saw this movie just by the fact that no one was talking about this issue. And again, things have changed. Now I feel like it's an issue that's very much on the table. But at the time, it wasn't. And I was just like, how could this be happening? And no one's talking about it. But I think a lot of people feel this way when they hear about an issue they care about. It's like, okay, I'm a fashion PR girl in New York City. Here's this issue I just found out about that horrifies me. But what am I going to do about it? Like, you know, there's people that work in international development. And if they can't figure it out, like, I certainly can. And I loved my job, by the way. People think it's like, oh, you hate your job, so you do a startup. At the time, like, I really, really enjoyed my role at Prada. So I sort of just went back to my job, but, like, continued to read articles about what was going on in the space. And a study came out in Kenya, which looked at the impact of donating school uniforms. And it basically showed that it reduced absenteeism by 64%. Hmm. And from a fashion perspective, I was like, wow, I can't believe an article of clothing is having that impact. And it was just sort of as cheesy as it is to say, an aha moment where I was like, okay, if a fashion brand was going to get involved in this issue, this would be the most A, authentic, and B, because of the skill set that I have, this is how I feel the most responsible in participating. So that was sort of how the seed was planted. But then it took a while. I went to business school. It wasn't just like I quit my job and started rallying the next day. And so I guess if you fast forward kind of through business school and all that, how did it kind of start to take shape in the first kind of few months and then I guess the first year? So we looked at the market. Warby Parker had was launching. Tom's Shoes and Feedbags were already out there. But when I was looking at the market, I was like, okay, when you look at philanthropic giving and fashion, it's really happening with lower priced accessories relatively lower priced accessories. And so what I always say is, you know, if you're expecting a $65 pair of Tom's shoes to make a donation consistently, why wouldn't we expect a contemporary price point product to make a similar donation? But why is social responsibility in fashion considered sort of a lower end kind of product? Mm -hmm. So with Rallyer, it was really about taking this model, which I think is still really compelling and sort of elevating it within the contemporary market. So gotcha. we aim to compete with like Theory, Rag and Bone, DVF, in terms of price point in that space. And so how did the brand kind of take shape in terms of the products and the offering and the aesthetic and all of that? So I really wanted to start with one product first. I think you see a lot of brands that launch with a lot of different categories. And 
it's a lot to take on, as you know. Production is tricky, and I would rather get one product right than get 10 products average. And because what we're donating are school uniform dresses, starting with dresses made the most sense in terms of just the overall brand proposition. At the time, it was also just like one of my favorite products. I like that it's like a full outfit and in terms of thinking about like the marketing and the lookbooks, it was like, okay, you could have like 10 pieces and that's 10 looks. So it made sense from a business perspective. It made sense from a marketing perspective. And it was also just a product I really liked. So that's always a plus. Yeah. It's interesting and arguably, I guess, incredibly authentic that a lot of brands with some sort of social cause will tack that on after saying, okay, we're going to be a shoe company that does this and we're going to do this. But this is very much the opposite. Exactly. And that's sort of when people say, like, how are you different than all these other brands? That's sort of what I go back to. The whole collection is inspired by modern uniform dressing. So the social mission came first. And, you know, when we started looking at fabrics and we developed a signature check print, you know, everything is inspired by this concept of modern uniform dressing. So our signature print is sort of a modern, unkept interpretation of the gingham prints you see throughout educative dress throughout history. So yeah, it lives, we always say, like it lives throughout the whole brand. It doesn't just come in, you know, when marketing yeah, starts. When it's convenient. Churning, <laughs> yeah. And so how did you kind of approach, I guess, then like the audience, the customer, and who was this for? So I always say, like, we always wanted the product to stand on its own. You know, when you're selling a $300, $400 dress, like it can't just be about the social mission. So right now, our customer is 25 to 35. Again, she shops the theories, rag and bones, DVFs of the world. And it's similar markets to those brands, I would say. We definitely have a segment that's older and a segment that's younger, but our core girl is 25 to 35. And so talk a bit about kind of what that first season release was like, kind of building up to it. You hadn't done this before, right? No, I hadn't. So my background was in PR, and everyone sort of says, like, shouldn't you have been a designer? Shouldn't you have been more of, like, just a business person? Like, your background's in PR, but... In this case, it actually really helped. We worked with JBC for launch, and so it's funny. Everyone, I feel like, has these horror stories and, like, fears about their launch day, but my launch day was, like, one of my favorite days ever (laughs) doing this business. And for the first time, and you can relate to this, I'm sure, it's like something exists in your head and, like, you don't know if it's going to work or it just feels almost like a made-up world that you created for yourself. And when people say, like, what do you do? And it hasn't launched yet, it's sort of this, like, I'm working on something. You'll see it soon. And so launch for us was just a sales were a lot more than we expected we with the help of jbc did a press embargo so no one could cover before the date so then when the date came it was sort of this rush of press which i think just in terms of pr strategy works really well and so it was a really good day and it was the first time it was like oh my gosh this company exists in the real world people like it people are shopping it was the first public validation i guess yeah. it's just like you're not a crazy person anymore yeah. talking about this thing that's real in your head but not in exactly. reality exactly. and so talk a bit about kind of like the production some of the mechanics behind getting to that launch production is the thing i think that scares people the most but the nice thing about it actually is i really think it's something you can only learn by doing like i went to business school yes we went over supply chain but like that's not yeah. going to give you the necessary skill set to actually launch a brand and what's nice about that is everyone has to go learn it on their own like people get really intimidated and they think they need this work experience or this educational background and it's like no you just have to go and do it and there's something actually nice about that from an entrepreneurship perspective because anyone can do that if you're willing to go and figure it out anyone who works in the garment district can probably attest to this but people don't have websites there's no directory it's very much like going into buildings, taking the elevator up to (laughs) random floors, going in and meeting people and asking about pricing. And it's very much like on the ground. But what's nice about that is that it's democratizing in a sense because anyone can do it if they want to. How did you decide to produce here in New York? Honestly, 
yes, there's definitely ethical consequences to being made in New York, but it also just made the most sense logistically. We produce in small batches. We are very, very close to our production partners. Like I'm at the factory three days a week and I don't know anything else. So it's hard to compare, but because this is the way we do it, like I couldn't imagine like not knowing who makes our clothes. (laughs) Like that to me is like such an odd concept just because I haven't had that experience. But I don't know. I worked in fashion in New York before. Like it wasn't even really a question. You mentioned that you've developed custom fabric mm-hmm. for the first season. What was that like? Because that's somewhat of a bold decision to do. Yeah. Thinking about even like the path that Tom's shoes paved, that little flag was such, I think, a powerful tool for them. And when we were launching, I was like, okay, I think people are really veering away from logos. So I knew it wasn't going to be like some letter or anything related to our logo. But I was like, how can we create something that A, speaks to the social mission and B, identifies that dress as Rallier without having to ask the person. Like, if you saw it on the street, mm-hmm. how would you know that that was Rallier? And I think that's really important in fashion, and sometimes people forget that. You can have a beautiful design, but if it can't be identified as your brand, it, it can be tough. So from the beginning, we were thinking about what that could be for us, and we didn't want it to be a logo. So it turned into this print that was linked to our social mission, and we were lucky. We found a mill. I mean, <laughs> I went to like traveled to Korea and like vetted a lot of other wow. options, but we landed on a mill in Japan that's a family-run small mill. So they were able to be flexible. Our minimums aren't that crazy. It was an iteration of something they had already done. So we wanted to have this three-dimensional texture. It started out with needle punching. It sort of veered into what this is now, which is it's feel coupe, which is basically you're cutting the threads. It goes through a four-step cutting process. A lot of it is luck, honestly. We found this mill. Were you we in got, Japan or you were in New no, York? No, we found them on Le Souk, Source for Style, okay. which is ironic because we went to Korea because we thought we were going to develop it ourselves. <laughs> and then we just decided like for a team so small, that's yeah. like to your point about me in New York, like there'd be no way to sort of quality control that from New York. So we sort of dropped that. And then we found this textile on Le Souk that was close to what we wanted, not exactly. And so we just reached out to them about making a few changes. And that's sort of how it came about. Very cool. You mentioned the launch went well. And then kind of what was that first you were like, how did you sell it to start? What was kind of the strategy there? We definitely had the advantage of PR at the beginning, which helped. We were really, really lucky. The month we launched, we were in Oprah Magazine in style L, Harper's Bazaar. So that helped for sure. But people always say like, oh, if I had the budget, I would invest in PR and that would solve all my problems. And PR is great, but it's not enough. I think people get this impression that, you know, if I'm on Vogue.com, I'm going to sell 3,000 units. And like, that's far from the truth. (laughs) But I have to give it credit. Like, it definitely helped to have that right. as a platform. It serves a different purpose, right? In terms I think of building it's a equity. And, like, yeah. it's not going to create a whole sales strategy for you, but I do think it's important to have. But what surprised me was that it really is a lot, it's slow and it's like person to person, customer to customer. And so we've done, ironically, we launched obviously digitally native, direct to consumer. Like, we do so many in person events. In April, we had five events. Hmm. And so that's what's the most effective for me is like meeting the customer in person, talking to her, seeing her try on the clothes, like watching her reaction. And obviously that's the answer that no one wants to hear because obviously that's not so scalable. (laughs) But for now, you know, we're a small company. We're still growing. And that's just what's most effective. We'll see if that changes over time. But for now, there's nothing more effective than being there in person definitely so how did you land on that strategy given this did launch direct to consumer like how did you start to understand okay maybe there's something to these events in the trunk show and being kind of in person it was just our trunk shows were by far our highest sales days and interestingly like even the few weeks after because people would be like wearing it and talking about it and there's something i think too 
about like meeting the founder and hearing the story in person like your customer is then leaving and saying like I went to this event and I had this experience it's not just like oh I found this on this website which we have too Mm -hmm. and that's great and that's more scalable so (laughs) everyone hopes for more of that but in the meantime I think to get someone to really feel part of the brand we do a lot of trunk shows out of my studio which is also where I live so people are sort of invited into my space and I think they feel connected to the brand and it makes them want to share the story more. All right, so launched direct-to-consumer, started doing the trunk shows. What were kind of the highlights or some of the ups and downs of the first year or so? Because we're, are we in year two or three? Two. Okay. We just turned one. Barely two. Okay, word. <laughs> I know. It feels like 10 years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the highlight is always seeing someone love a dress, try it on, hear about the social mission, and just watch them connect and be like, this is so cool. I, like The best thing is like, oh, I've never seen a brand doing it like this. And I hope that changes. I think it is changing. Obviously, there's more social responsibility in fashion now in this price point, but I think there's a long way to go. So I think that's really fulfilling is getting to, again, like something is really cool to you and you're like, but does anyone else think it's cool? Is this just compelling to me? And so to sort of get the validation of, oh, this is resonating and to get that reaction in person is really fulfilling. Yeah. How did you land at the price point that you did? So again, Warby Parker had just launched and we're like, okay, $95. And they raised the pricing a bit. Before that, it was more like feed bags, Tom's shoes, a lot of people don't even know about Warby Parker's social mission. And that was always our goal, too, is that you're buying a dress because you love it. And then the social mission is something maybe you knew about, maybe you found out about after, but you would have bought the dress either way. Again, we wanted it to be contemporary brand. And so I kind of, honestly, this was just the mechanics of it. I looked at a competitive set I pulled from all their websites, taking out formal gowns. Yep. Like I took out all the dresses that would fall in our category, took the average, and it ended up being around there. Has anything changed, I guess, from like a sales distribution strategy? What lessons have been learned there or changes you've made over the last kind of two years? So about three, six months ago, it became overwhelmingly obvious that the vast majority of our customers are in New York and California. I'm from San Francisco. So we typically will do two trunk shows a year in New York, two in San Francisco. So like it makes sense. Like it's where we started. And I do tons of events and even just like multi-brand pop-ups and stuff in New York. So it makes sense. But we sort of started thinking like, okay, this is great. It's a great place to start. But where do we go from here? So this is when we really started thinking about, I will say strategic wholesale. (laughs) I still really believe in the direct consumer proposition. As we were sort of talking about before, like I think of wholesale as more of a partnership. It's a way to acquire a different kind of customer. And if you can make the economics work, I'm starting to become much more open-minded to it you kind of get to a point in the road where it's like, okay, to really make it direct to consumer, I'm going to have to start investing serious money into marketing, or I'm going to try wholesale. So for now, and maybe, you know, we'll end up taking the first option down the road. But for now, I would much rather give wholesale a shot in a strategic way. You know, we're never going to be a traditional wholesale brand, but I'd rather do strategic wholesale for now than have to raise a ton of money and invest in marketing. Like that to me just seems like an easier path forward today. Yeah. What are the economics of trunk shows? How do you think about them or what so are the costs? We always have a goal in mind. <laughs> and it's interesting. We typically will create that goal based on RSVPs. So when we started at a trunk show, we would have maybe like 10, 20 people. And to be honest, it was mostly just like my friends that wanted to come try in person. We just had a trunk show a week and a half ago and we had 70 RSVPs. And it's always cool. And it's like more and more people yeah. you don't know. <laughs> 
And it was actually awesome. We had like a group of girls who was like came from Atlanta and they were here for a bachelorette, but they had heard that they were doing a trunk mm. show and they always wanted to try on the brand in person. And so I got really excited because I was like, A, a stranger, B, not a New Yorker or yeah, a Californian. The, the trifecta, like, this yeah. is perfect. <laughs> and what's nice about a trunk show is that you can sort of check out like who are they, how old right. are they, what kind of brands are they shopping. And see your customers in person for once. Yeah. And get a sense of like what is their style. But I would say like a successful trunk show is selling anywhere between 10 and 30 dresses. Gotcha. And again, like most of them are either in my apartment slash studio or family friends or we call them ralliers. Yep. So the costs are really low. So gotcha. So your base is popping up Even in if you sold four, you have... it'd be great because you're not spending any money. Yeah. Everyone wants to be in stores. Everyone wants to have, obviously, their own brick and mortar is the dream. But there's so many low-cost opportunities. I think when you live in New York, there's so many opportunities to do, you know, revenue sharing or there's really interesting markets now, which we've tested and we've tried too. But there's always low-cost options. And I think for now, doing the low-cost option as often as possible (laughs) is where we're headed. How did you kind of approach, I guess, like the seasonality piece? Yeah, it's a great question. So the brand is Seasonless Direct, and we just actually were talking about this at our most recent trunk show. When you're a new brand, I would say more than half of the people who came to this trunk show, it was their first time interacting with the brand in person. So they have no idea like when something came out, right. how old something is. And the collection is designed that way. It's designed so that it lasts a lot longer than a season. And so it really makes no sense to me, and this is why wholesale can be challenging, to start discounting something just because a calendar tells you to. You know, if you created a piece that's just as relevant today from a design perspective than it was six months ago and people are still discovering it and buying it, like why would you just sort of discard it and start discounting it? Not to mention, you know, production costs money. So if each month new people are discovering your brand, why wouldn't you sell what you already have if you believe in it? So we're seasonless in terms of our direct business, obviously. (laughs) For wholesale which we're still sort of figuring out. That may change a bit, but you'd be surprised. I think especially when you're talking about dropship, there is more flexibility than you would think. And again, like wholesalers are struggling as well in a different way. And so if you can create a solution for them that eliminates costs and inventory risk for them, it's sort of a win-win. Yeah. How do you approach the design process then if you're going to be seasonless? So I think this speaks a lot to just the waste that's created in fashion. Like we produce in small batches and we're able to produce based on when inventory runs out. You can't really talk about fashion right now without addressing sustainability. It's such an issue. We're the second dirtiest industry in the world. And so we really create on a need basis. Obviously, when we launched, we launched with 15 styles. We had nothing. So like we wanted to show our customers a full range. We wanted the site to feel full. And so that was sort of the base. And now, basically, when certain styles sell out, we see that, you know, sleeveless works really well. We'll think about how that style can look in something new because it's sold out. But we're not just going to make things when we have the inventory already. So it's a much more of kind of a flexible, dynamic approach right. than just like fall 17 is this and we'll sell. And, then- and you have to adjust, right? So even for direct consumer businesses, the PR editor world still runs on seasons. So we still create lookbooks. We call them, you know, collection one, collection two, collection threes. They're not necessarily rooted to a season, but like it has to be packaged so that an editor can understand what is going to be available when. So there's definitely mechanics that need to be created so that you can be relevant to buyers and editors that do have to operate on this calendar. But I think you can be both. I think right now people are sort of saying like you either have to be in this world or in that world. And I don't think that's necessarily true. I think you can say we're a seasonless brand and then still create materials that are relevant to 
partners that have to be on the calendar. So how has the social piece been going, like in terms of results? Social mission? Yeah. So the way our social mission works is we're not actually donating school uniforms. We pay for labor, sewing machines, training, and we work with Shafco, who is our nonprofit partner. But we've donated the equivalent of hundreds of uniforms, which is always great. It's like one of my favorite things about the business. Another thing people don't talk about social mission is you know how hard it is to start one of these things. And it, it's the thing that keeps you going. Like when it gets really hard, I always tell myself, I'm like, this is not just about you. So like get up and keep going. Like this isn't yeah. like the Olivia Wright brand. Like this is about a lot more. So like if you're tired and you're sick of it and it was a really hard week, like it's not just about you. So keep it moving. <laughs> so for everyone that works for Rallyer, it's a constant source of motivation. Yeah. What's been the cheapest and also most expensive lesson you've learned in the course of the brand? Oh, the most expensive lesson was sizing. So when we launched, we had nothing, obviously, to go off of. And so you sort of make these assumptions based off air <laughs> around what sizes you think will sell. So, you know, we produced a lot of, like, in the middle. Right, which is always what one, two, two, one is the... Exactly. Split. But, you know, we didn't take into account that, like, we exist in very specific markets. So, you know, our first season, I produced very little size zero, size two, honestly, not very little, but compared to how yes. many size fours or sixes we were producing, it was not that many. And that sold out. But even today, people are still requesting size zeros of like the original 15 styles. And it's tough because like you can't do a whole run just for that size. But it's like, oh my gosh, I can't believe like had I known. Yeah. And obviously you're able to adjust that, but that was a costly mistake. And on the upper end too, I again, like produced in the middle and those sizes sold out really quickly too. So for when we did our second season, our second collection, I should say, we kind of just went like across the board the same. And that actually ended up being about right, hmm. which is interesting. So I think like the one, two, two, one thing is a great overall rule. But I think for individual brands, like everyone has a different niche customer. Yeah. And so using that rule is a great starting point. But then once you get the real data, you just fix it really quickly. And yeah, but people still like I get emails like, I've been waiting for a size zero of this dress for like a year. I'm like, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's not coming. <laughs> yeah, it's not coming. And what about like cheap lesson? I mean, the whole trunk show game is cheap. Yeah. The pop-up game, like it's a ton of manual labor, but you know. That's what you have if you're small, right? That's yeah. That's free. But it's a great way to test. We just did an event where it was an ethical fashion blogger panel. And so they were just like, if you have a brand, just like you, it wasn't necessarily a shopping event. It was more just like, come and be in a room with like-minded people. And 10 people from that event came to our trunk show hmm. the following weeks. And that cost very little. Yeah. And that's another thing. I think people think of like these events that everyone wants to sell and everyone wants to say like, okay, we invested. I mean, it's very low cost, like a hundred dollars yeah. into participating in this. And like, no one bought. So like, that's a failure. And it's like, no, in six months, if 10 people buy from there, it's a huge success. That right. was a great ROI. So yeah, the pop-up game. I mean, people hate it. And founders hate it because it's so much work, just like especially with fashion. One of my really good friends has a skincare brand, and I'm always jealous because she comes with like a little bag, <laughs> and she's set up in 10 minutes. And when you have fashion, you know, you, you get there three hours early, you're yeah. steaming, you're assembling racks. So it's a lot, and people hate hearing that that's what works, but it does work, yeah. and it doesn't cost that much. So anytime there's an opportunity to pop up, if it's low cost, I typically do it. Yeah. How do you balance the short-term viability of just needing to you know exist day-to-day -day versus kind of the longer-term ethos of hey i understand if this trunk show happens and people buy in six months that's still good how do you kind of manage that it's a constant battle yeah. short-term long-term 
I think this happens to a lot of founders. It's really hard to get out of the short term mindset because you're just like, I'm trying to make it to tomorrow. <laughs> and, you know, we look at sales weekly too. Like what were sales this week? So you always want to hit what your goal is. So I always get bogged down with like, oh my gosh, I'm thinking so short term. And this is just a weird thing that I've done, but that it's been helpful for me is I try to dedicate one day out of my week to only think about long term. So even wholesale hmm. for us, like that's more of like a long term strategy because of the way the calendar works. It's not something you can just decide to do. And then the next day you're in it, you know, you have to plan in advance. You have to be on this traditional calendar that we're not used to being on. So I try to give myself a day and it's the same for design. Like if you're thinking about like who you are, big picture, like not just like, okay, we want this sleeve to be a certain way, but what do we represent from a design perspective as a whole? So I try to give myself one day a week. I'll like force myself. I'll, hmm. Even the email game is like so, it's hard not to be like, oh, I need to respond to all these emails. And it's like, no. So one day I just like try not to do any sort of short term project. Like I don't respond to emails and I'll just like sit and think about like the big picture. Are there weeks where it doesn't happen? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> but I try. Very cool. And then I guess as you look forward, like what's on the horizon that you're most excited about? We haven't talked about this publicly yet, but we're going to have separates for fall. Dresses will always be our pillar product. But again, things to take away from talking to people in person. At every trunk show, I get asked, like, when are you doing pants? When are you doing blazers? Mm -hmm. When are you doing tops? When are you doing shirting? And it just became such an overwhelming request that, again, we're going to test it really small. It's not going to be, you know, a full-blown launch. But I'm excited to see how the brand will evolve just from a product perspective. We know how we exist in dresses. So, like, how does that translate to a blazer? How does that translate to shirting? And how do you maintain the consistency of this idea of modern uniform dressing that's sort of our core inspirational touch point? So I'm excited about that. And then I have to say, too, like, it's interesting to see what a wholesale partnership will look like. There's a lot of options. And, like, there's a lot going on in retail right now. So I don't know what that's going to look like yet. <laughs> but that's exciting, too. And people think it's like, oh, wholesale, you're giving away this whole margin. But you're getting a lot. Like, I don't have a sales staff. I no. don't have brick and mortar. You're just getting, like, a few customers. Yeah. So I'm excited to see what will happen. Yeah. Don't, don't know the answer yet. Definitely. And then where's the name from? So a rallier is one who brings people together around a common cause. But I liked that there was ambiguity so that we could sort of create our own culture and visual culture around the word. But it is a word that technically means something, <laughs> too. Awesome. Thanks for talking. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Loose Threads podcast. Join the newsletter at loosethreads.com and feel free to leave a review on iTunes. We always appreciate it. This episode was edited by George Drake Jr. and my thanks to him for his time on it. I've known Olivia since before she started the brand and it's been really exciting to watch her build it over the last year. She's taken a very sustainable and methodical approach to growing the business, which is paying dividends as she continues to expand. The brand's laudable social mission and goal to elevate it to a contemporary level is pushing the company into promising territory. We have a great roster of upcoming guests, including Yehua Young of Pivot, Alana Branston of Bulletin, and Carrie Hammer of Her Namesake Label. Thanks for listening and talk to you soon.